0: Welcome to the Resources for Integrated Care webinar, Palliative Care for Older Adults Duly Eligible for Medicare and Medicaid. This podcast is excerpted from a webinar presented live on December 5th, 2018. In this podcast, we will hear from Diane Meyer, Director of the Center to Advance Palliative Care. She will give an overview of palliative care and we'll also discuss current best practices and challenges in meeting the needs of
1: beneficiaries. Hi, everybody. Um, on this opening slide, there's a typo in case somebody wants to email me. It's diane with 1N.meyer at MSSM.edu. Next slide, please. So um, I don't have much time, so I'm going to be very brief and begin with a definition of palliative care. Um, It is specialized medical care. It is a medical and nursing subspecialty for people with serious illness and their families and caregivers that is focused on improving quality of life by addressing pain, symptoms, and the full range of stresses that are associated with serious illness. It's typically provided by an interdisciplinary team that works with patients, their families, other caregivers, and the whole rest of the health professional team to provide an added layer of support at the same time as all other appropriate medical care, whether curative, life prolonging, or supportive. So it's appropriate for a patient of any age, with any diagnosis, at any stage, and in any setting. Um, And as I said, provided concurrently with all other medical care. Next slide, please. And so that definition I think exposes the differentiation from hospice, Um, but on this slide there's a definition on the right. Hospice care by statute um, is restricted for people highly likely to be dead within six months and who are willing to sign a piece of paper saying they are willing to give up insurance coverage for treatment of the terminal illness. Its focus is on helping the beneficiary, the caregivers, the family um, had the best possible experience in the weeks and months leading up to death. In contrast, palliative care is an option for anybody living with a serious illness. Its focus is on relief from all forms of suffering and includes those with curable illness, chronic illness, um, and most of these individuals obviously are not hospice eligible either because they're hoping for a cure, or they may live with their disease for many years um, and/or they are continuing to benefit from disease treatment. So eligibility for palliative care is based on patient and family need, not on prognosis. Next slide, please. So what this slide shows is the continuum of palliative care. At present in the United States the great majority of hospitals with more than 50 beds are delivering some form of hospital-based palliative care. On the right-hand side of this slide, you see hospice for end-of-life care. There are over 5,500 hospices in the US. So access to palliative care as delivered to the dying in hospice is also broadly and widely available. In contrast, if you look at the middle of this slide, people who are getting care in their clinician's offices, who live in a nursing home or assisted living or other long-term care setting, or who are at home with functional impairment and multiple comorbidities, we have a lot of gaps in that middle space. And of course, that middle space is, is where the great majority of people living with a serious illness are. They are neither hospitalized nor dying. So this is the gap we have to fill. Next slide, please. Um, You can see here the pretty rapid growth in access to hospital palliative care. There are now more than 1,800 such programs in the U.S. caring for over 10 million individual patients every year. Um, It's more than tripled, as was mentioned, and pretty much all of the highly ranked on various quality metrics, hospitals and health systems, Um, are universally providing palliative care. Next slide, please. Um, Why is this so important for dually eligible beneficiaries? We know that older people are more likely to have chronic disease and multiple chronic conditions. They are much more likely to end up in the emergency department for management of chronic disease. Um, And among those who are dual eligible, This is the group with the highest utilization of emergency departments and hospitals um, in the weeks, months, and several years leading up to the end of life. And the highest combined Medicare and Medicaid spending is also in this patient population. So it's a very logical focus for improving access to palliative care and making sure that that palliative care is aligned with national quality standards. Next slide, please. So, um, as you guys know, dually eligible beneficiaries are covered for hospice under Medicare, and most states also provide hospice under Medicaid. Um, Which program covers what and when and under what circumstances is often complicated and confusing for clinicians, for the patients, beneficiaries themselves, and for payers. Palliative care services are covered for the dying under the Medicare hospice benefit. Palliative care consultation services um, are billable under Medicare Part B or Medicaid for providers, nurse practitioners, PAs, and physicians, but the rest of the interdisciplinary team has no visible means of financial support um, in the fee-for-service system. Um, there's a link here for more details on the how of payment in palliative care. Next slide, please. So um, I'm sure you guys have heard of the term the value equation. The value equation is very simply quality in the numerator and cost in the denominator. So a very high-value intervention would be one that markedly improves quality at very little cost. A classic example of that is clean drinking water or vaccination, uh, both of which save millions and millions of lives every year at trivial or no cost, um, public health interventions. much In contrast, much of modern medical care in the United States is characterized by either little or no benefit or actual harm at very, very high cost. Um, And it is that reality that is causing all this focus on improving value in healthcare in the U.S. So how does palliative care fit into that equation? On the left are the outcomes that have been shown to improve quality in multiple studies with palliative care, symptom burden, quality of life. There are now five randomized controlled trials suggesting that cancer patients receiving palliative care actually live longer than like cancer patients who do not receive palliative care, probably because they avoid the hospital and its associated hazards, better family and caregiver satisfaction, better long-term family bereavement outcomes, and actually better clinician satisfaction. Um, As a result of improving quality, costs go down. And the reason costs go down is because crises are prevented. So you don't have people showing up in the emergency department at three in the morning in pain or short of breath or with a bowel obstruction from constipation because those things have been identified, prevented, and managed in the community setting. Next slide, please. So this is an actual patient I took care of now roughly four years ago. When I met him in the Sinai ED, he, he was dual eligible. Um, And he was in the ED, he has moderate dementia and very severe low back pain, which was chronic due to spinal stenosis and arthritis. He had prostate cancer but it was quiescent and that was probably not the precipitant for the ED visit. He described his pain as an 8 out of a possible 10. He was taking a dangerously high dose of Tylenol to manage it without benefit. And as I looked at the electronic health record, it turns out he had been in the ED three prior times with three prior hospitalizations in the previous several months um, for pain, for falls, and one time for an agitated delirium that was due to a fecal impaction. Next slide, please. He, when, when I <clears throat> met him in the ED with my medical student, he was curled in a ball facing away from us and sank, basically furious at his wife for bringing him back to the ED in the hospital where he never wanted to set foot again. His wife said, he hates being here, but what could I do? So the story was he had gone to the bathroom after dinner, um, sat down on the toilet, and was unable to stand up because his back went into spasm. His wife tried to help him stand up. She couldn't. There were no neighbors at home because it was 530 at night. Um, She called her primary doctor's office and she got a tape that said, if this is a medical emergency, hang up now and call 911. Um, And to her and to him, he was in pain, he couldn't be moved. This was a medical emergency. So we had a healthcare system that was perfectly designed to get the results that it got. So she called 911 and they ended up in the ED. Um, Not because they did something wrong, but because the system was designed to achieve this outcome. Next slide, please. So, as you can see on the left here, before we met him, there had been four ED visits, three hospitalizations, one of which led to somebody put a catheter in his bladder, he developed um, urosepsis, ended up in an ICU, had marked functional and cognitive decline, um, and an enormous amount of strain on his poor wife. Once we got involved, I spent a lot of time at the stretcher in the ED, seeing how well he could tolerate very low doses of morphine to try to get this pain under control. Because it was clear to me that if we kept admitting him to the hospital, A, it would, it would harm his quality of life. He wanted nothing to do with that. And B, the odds of death in the hospital were getting it higher and higher with each stay given the hazards of hospitalization in older adults. Um, And it turned out he tolerated very low-dose morphine, five milligrams is what he needed. It enabled him to turn over on the stretcher to feel like he could sit up and walk to the bathroom with assistance. He started holding his wife's hand again and flirting with the nurses. And all of the things we worry about with opioids, at least in the short term, did not come to pass. Um, we spent a lot of time working with his wife to make sure she understood how to safely measure and give the appropriate amount of this drug should this recur, and very importantly taught her that he needed very su- significant doses of laxatives every day, whether he needed or not, and what to do if he didn't have a bowel movement. And about three hours after he showed up, we put them in a taxi and sent them home with a small bottle of concentrated liquid morphine and a huge container of Miralax, which is a laxative. Um, And I was worried to send him home. I had no idea what the home setting was like. So I called my colleagues in the house calls practice that we have at Mount Sinai, told them I was sending an 88-year-old demented patient home on morphine for back pain and I needed them to see him the next morning. When they got there the next morning, they found many disasters waiting to happen. No elevated toilet seat, no grab bars in the bathroom. The only couch was about a foot off the floor. So imagine you or me trying to stand up from that. For Mr. B, it was impossible and it was precipitating all kinds of pain and difficulty. There were loose throw rugs all over the floor, electrical wires easy to trip on. The refrigerator had only old Chinese food in it because Mrs. B could not go shopping, because Mr. B would get very agitated if she left him. Um, and he his back and mobility problems were such that he couldn't go with her. So they just ordered from the only place where they had a takeout menu from. Their only daughter lives in California, and they never told her about any of this because they didn't want to worry. They had been very active members of a faith community and had stopped going to church, even though it was only three blocks away because it was too hard for Mr. B to get there. So what the team in the home did was get PT and OT in there to get the right equipment in, to get one of those chairs where you push a button and it helps you stand up, to get Meals on Wheels through the Area Agency on Aging delivered. With their permission, they contacted the daughter who now orders groceries online every week to be delivered. And they contacted the minister in the local church who was very embarrassed at having lost track of this couple. That church now sends a friendly visitor three afternoons a week to spend time with Mr. B. Mrs. B can go out, she can shop, she can see her friends. Um, It's high school students two out of the three days um, doing community service and a member of the congregation on Friday afternoons. The church sends a car to pick them up on Sundays, gives them lunch after services and takes them home. Those were the interventions. Many of them were social work interventions, many were PTOT interventions, and there were simple things like food insecurity that were addressed. That was now nearly four years ago. He is still home under the care of his wife, has not once been back to the ED or the hospital. He's getting his primary and palliative care at home from a visiting house calls practice. Um, And I ask you all to look at these two columns and think to yourself, which one of these two columns is easier to get in the current healthcare system? And if you work in any standard setting, you will say the left-hand column is easier to get, and the right-hand column is very, very difficult to get. Um, So our task as a nation is to make the left-hand column a never event and the right-hand column the standard of care for people, frail, older adults with multiple chronic conditions, functional and cognitive impairment. Next slide, please. So how does it actually work? Next slide, please. So there's these top six characteristics, which really all have to be present in order to get the outcomes that I showed you earlier. That is better quality and lower cost. This is your checklist. First of all, there has to be an adequately staffed interdisciplinary team, which includes nursing, social work, chaplains, physicians, often care managers, PT, OT, and counselors because these patients are very complex and their needs cannot be addressed by a single discipline. And if you try to do that, it won't work and the patient will end up in the ED in the hospital. The team um, needs staff members that can screen and then target people with the greatest, greatest need. So you don't want to be providing high-intensity, team-based palliative care to Mrs. B, for example. She doesn't need it. That would be a waste of resources. So it's really critical to identify the high need, high risk or rising risk, patient population and apply this very rich service, this very comprehensive service to those who are most likely to benefit. It's critical to talk to people about what matters most to them in the current context. Very few people will tell you what matters most to them is living forever. Most people will tell you what matters most to them is remaining independent and not having disabling pain and other symptoms. If you don't support the family and other caregivers, they're the ones who call 911 when they become overwhelmed and stressed. So it is not enough just to support the patient. It is essential to equally support, screen, assess, and support the family that are doing most of the work. Your staff, somebody on your staff, whether um, an NP or a physician, has to be well-trained and expert in pain and symptom management and know how to safely and appropriately use opioids in this population. And last but not least, if a patient calls at 5.30 p.m. and they get a tape that says call 911," that's exactly what they will do. And that... What that translates to is an investment in meaningful, by which I mean responsive, within 10 to 15 minutes, 24-7 coverage for this population. Next slide, please. Um, the training, um, most of us did not get this in nursing, social work, or medical school. It just It's still not a required part of the curriculum for undergraduate and graduate education. These are the components that people working with a seriously ill complex population, the skills they need to have. My organization provides comprehensive online training linked to CME and CEU um, for the full range of disciplines. Um, And there are resources in the last bullet on this slide for other training options. Next slide. The screening criteria, so how do you identify the highest risk and rising risk populations? So the screening criteria that are evidence-based involve three criteria. One is the presence of one or more serious illnesses, Um, and if you see the reference at the bottom, those are the diseases that were identified in the Dartmouth Atlas study of care in the last six months of life. So they are things like end-stage liver disease, end-stage renal disease, Um, COPD, CHF, uh, stage four, advanced cancers, et cetera. But a diagnosis is not enough to predict risk. There also have to be other factors present. Um, And the other two factors are either a hospitalization or a skilled nursing facility stay in the prior 12 months because that is an indicator that the management of the disease is starting to get beyond what the patient and family are able to handle at home. And the third critical criteria is the presence of functional and or cognitive impairment. Uh, And we list a bunch of scales there for identifying frailty, cognitive impairment, and functional impairment. And the, the difficulty, you can get the first two, the diagnoses and the past utilization, off claims data. The problem is you can't get the third, the functional, frailty, and cognitive status, yet those are critical independent predictors of subsequent utilization of the emergency department and hospital. So, and in fact, we know that presence of all three criteria predicts a 50% likelihood of hospitalization in the next 12 months and roughly a 25% risk of mortality. Next slide, please. In terms of asking people what matters most to them, don't ask people what their goals are, that has no meaning to members of the public, that is very inside baseball jargon, ask them what is most important to them now in this stage of their life and in in the context of their illness. This study, which was done with um, several hundred senior center participants, so they were relatively functional, they were able to get out of the house and go to the senior center, were asked to rank three priorities. Um, living longer, relief from pain and symptoms, and remaining independent, and as you can see here, the winner by a long shot was remaining independent, followed by relief from suffering, and dead last, pun intended, was living longer. And yet the entire healthcare system is the reverse of that, is designed based on assumptions for the reverse of that. Um, Next slide, please. Um, I mentioned the importance of supporting family and other caregivers, family caregivers, reporting stress, are much more likely to get sick, are much more likely to die, and are much more likely to use a lot of healthcare care resources. Um, support for unpaid caregivers, i.e. family, um, through support groups and through us, the clinician, paying attention to the experience of the caregiver and their needs, um, has very consistent beneficial outcomes. Reduces utilization, decreases the odds of nursing home placement, um, and improves experience and satisfaction. And there are some resources on this slide for that as well. Next slide, the, um, I mentioned that the team has to know what they're doing in managing symptoms. In fact, if you look at the data, on use of the emergency department in over 65s, Medicare beneficiaries. Uncontrolled symptoms associated with chronic disease is the number one, accounts for 90% of ED visits. Is it pain? Is it shortness of breath? Is it agitation? Is it um, not having had a bowel movement in days and days? One out of 10 ED visits in over 65 are due to a fall. Nine out of 10 are due to symptom distress that could have and should have been identified and managed in the community, um, could have been prevented. Um, We know that effective management of symptoms, there are now several randomized controlled trials showing, predominantly in cancer patients, but no reason to think it doesn't apply to others, that proactive identification and management of symptom distress markedly reduces suffering, healthcare utilization, um, and actually reduces mortality, which makes sense. Um, So I can find you those references if anybody needs them. Next slide, please. 24-7 access. Um, We know that this is not widely available in the United States, and because it is not widely available, people turn to the only place that is available to them, which is 911 and the ED. Um, and um, as as expensive as it is to provide 24-7 coverage, it is much more expensive not to provide it to this population.
0: Thank you for listening. This podcast is presented by the Lewin Group and is supported through the Medicare and Medicaid Coordination Office at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. MMCO is dedicated to helping beneficiaries enrolled in Medicare and Medicaid have access to seamless, high-quality health care that includes a full range of covered services in both programs. To support providers in their efforts to deliver more integrated and coordinated care, MMCO is developing technical assistance and actionable tools based on successful innovations and care models. To learn more about the current efforts and resources, please visit our website or follow us on Twitter for more details. Our Twitter handle is at integrate underscore care.